Thanks so much for joining me again on Sound Perspective, the podcast where we examine how sight and sound interact. This is your host, Alfred Faber. I'm recording this introduction from Donggurdong. My Korean pronunciation isn't amazing, but I think that's pretty close. Donggurdong is a massive park just northeast of Seoul, and it's the largest collection of royal tombs in South Korea. Fun facts. Uh, I'm here in Korea on holiday with my girlfriend, and I'm sitting in front of this big, beautiful temple-type building surrounded by this lovely nature. I'm recording here kind of partly out of necessity, you know, trying to find some quiet because urban Korea is really dang noisy, Uh, but also just because this place is really calming. And it's hard to feel nervous in front of the mic in a place like this, that's that's this peaceful. That concept is something I tried to explore in this episode with a really interesting guy, Dean Hurley. Dean has had a long career in post-production sound, having worked for names like Oliver Stone and Werner Herzog, uh, but most of the work he's done has been with David Lynch. He runs David's post-production sound studio in Los Angeles, Asymmetrical Studios, and has worked not only on David's screen content, such as Twin Peaks The Return and Inland Empire, but also David's musical endeavours. He's produced um, a lot of David's albums. Uh, You can even see him in episode 5 of Twin Peaks The Return, playing drums at the Roadhouse with David's son Riley. I interviewed him when he was in Sydney, working on some compositions for the Masters of Modern Sound event. Um, The Masters of Modern Sound uh, is an event happening in mid-January at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, uh, where various composers, sound designers and performers are creating pieces in response to these artworks by modern abstract artists such as Picasso, Monet and Kandinsky. I thought it'd be really interesting to conduct interviews in the same space where his music will be being performed in the gallery, in the exhibition. The Art Gallery of New South Wales was kind enough to give me access to the exhibition for an hour before it opened in the morning. And even though it was a lot noisier than previous interviews I've done, the the gallery has these high ceilings and cavernous space and the staff were walking around setting up, I really think it was worth it because when you're in that room, amongst those artworks, you feel this like presence, this weight of these innovative artists who, over the past century and a half, pushed boundaries and experimented. And I think Dean felt that too. So that's why I'm recording in this park, because even though it's like minus five degrees here and I'm freezing my butt off and I keep getting interrupted by random noises it chills me out and it inspires me and it's interesting how an environment can do that so anyway here's Dean Hurley hope you enjoy uh taking a look over here yeah for the people who can't see us right now who are just listening could you describe in words, one of the paintings that we're looking at. Yeah, so this is, let's see, this is a Kandinsky, this would be Composition 5 from 1911. If I'm not mistaken, it was either the cover of, like, one of my textbooks or it was, you know, one of the prominent pictures um, full page throughout the course of, of the book. So the thing about 
getting older and moving through life is you're like reconfronted with things that are familiar or meant something totally different to you at different points of your life. And of course, at the time I was in school, it was hard to see a cover contextualized in like a, a book form because we're so used to that being like just kind of a design. You're seeing them in their original non-reproduced, you know, format. It's just, it's a little different and it really makes you kind of to think and re rethink both your life and also history, you know. Mm. The main thing about this ex exhibition that, that I'm trying to like essentially, um, you know, alchemize into a sound work is it's this kind of snapshot of a specific time I'm curious as to how you find describing visual media with language as opposed to translating it into music. Do you find it easier to do it with sound than with spoken word? No, it's just it, definitely different. Um, it would be like just a, just a different set of tools, you know what I mean? Like my boss, David Lynch, w would always say, like, um, cinema has the power of, like, it's basically image and sound moving through time. And when you put those things together, it can say things that words can never say. Because if you had a script, and if the script was great as is, what's the point of shooting it and turning it into a film? But different elements and different elements together can just say things differently. You know, just mm. how, how we like artists and you know, these, these different vantage points and perspectives, they're different flavors and colors and windows into ourselves and what we can learn. And so, yeah, um, totally different. But the thing that a gallery does the best is, like cinema, lining these works up like scenes. And you're seeing, like, stretches of, you know, a decade in a matter of, like, a few footsteps, but you're seeing what one thing led to another, the cross-pollination of ideas and how one sort of prominent thinker of the time is, you know, alchemizing thoughts and situations. And as you move through the gallery, representation breaks down. And coming from, you know, a background with, with film music and, and sound design, it's like trying to, that's like the, the exact thing that I feel like is getting exciting about um, a lot of the sound and music world right now where people feel like more than ever there's this lowering of the barometer of acceptance of like just noise artists you know for instance and and just these things where people are buying like contact mic field recordings on LP you know and it's just like giving the um, the weight of listening to something like that as a musical composition and that's what I I think this whole show is kind of representing to me is like this um, this this blip in time where you know the elements and ether of the air are kind of swirling and this this thing happens and forever changes you know the the course of artwork or whatever it's like like some of this stuff I think to the art world is like Rosa Parks you know on the on the bus making a statement and everything after that gets shifted and molecules change in culture you know it's like dropping a drop of iodine in water and watching it slowly affect the entire color of, of the glass, you know? It's like, that's what I'm 
thinking of my role here is just to kind of drop a drop a mood into the entire space and let people walk around in it, you know. I couldn't find an interview with you that wasn't about David Lynch or right, Twin right. Peaks. Yeah. And um, I was really curious about your work with Werner Herzog on mm-hmm. My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? So um, what was his approach to sound like compared to David Lynch? Yeah, that's a great question. Because there were, there were differences. I'm such a um, observer and like learner that all the practitioners, filmmakers, and people that I've worked with, artists, I'm constantly trying to absorb, figure out what makes them tick. You know, David is a, has incredible control over all the mediums, as everyone knows. So every single element of the filmmaking process, he has a language and understanding, and at some points in his career has done every single role. You know, started out making, um, you know, handmade stop motion on his Bolex and recording sound and putting it to to it himself. Um, so he's, I would say he has an incredibly specific uh, set of tools and language when he's working with me. You know, he'll say, take that background, lower it an octave and put seven second reverb on it. Those might be the, the types of things that I'm getting from David that I wouldn't get from anyone else. You know what I mean? Somebody like Werner, um, I feel like he had much more of a grand command on story. And sonically, it was more like, I mean, he had ideas and stuff, but it was more like you could tell he was this um, impeccable filter that things were going to pass through him and he was going to make determination on what's wrong and what's right. You know, it's mm. a classic director role. So he'd kind of delegate to you yeah. a bit. That there, was one, there was one scene in that film where they had shot at an ostrich farm. And um, I think that whole day's shoot was riddled with some issues for sound because their sound production recordist either wasn't there or wasn't scheduled to be there was like no production sound recordist and the sound was actually recorded by the film's producer oh wow yeah Yeah. and all he did was just simply lob up everybody and press record Mm. and that scene in the um in the picture edit was just like almost incomprehensible you know you couldn't hear things what had happened was somebody's lob had fallen in their shirt and as they moved around it was just you know riddled with noise and muffled dialogue so what happened in that scene when it finally came to post is i kind of jumped and went to town basically stealing others mics and eqing appropriately giving body to you know off-axis stuff and did this whole surgical um pass on the scene being like you know quickly trying to determine like is this all there or is this going to be a a major thing for ADR or whatever you know so Winstown cleaned it up got it as it is in the film and Werner came to a playback and we were playing back through a large stretch of stuff and everything was going great it got to that scene the scene finished And he just, like, violently was like, stop, stop the picture, you know, stop everything. 
And I was just like, oh shit, you know, maybe this wasn't as clean as I thought it, or wasn't, you know, up to snuff or salvaged as much as I thought I did. I stopped it and he was just like, you have saved the picture. That was like my like defining moment with him. I was just like, that's, that's awesome. You know, like somebody like David, through the years I feel like we developed a shorthand where he would be like, um, it'd be like a crummy recording or something. And I'm like, I don't know if we have this. He'll be like, you'll clean it up, <laughs> you know? Um, so that was the difference there. Sometimes you, you, it's nice to be in other hot seats where people recognize that you, mm. you helped salvage something that was on the fence of, of like, is this, is this intact? Is this, mm. you know, is this, can this be saved, mm. you know? Because I read that he didn't want ADR for that film. Yeah, both David and him. Oh, wait. really? David doesn't like ADR? No, not at all. Mm. Not at all. Um, and that's why, you know, the limits of what's passable to mm. them, I mean, they're judging from a, from a higher vantage point because they've seen it, what, what ADR can do. I mean, it can totally change a scene and give it a, a flavor that is mm. not wanted. Mm. I mean, they are after the original truth of the actors in the moment, and they're just always judging, like, you know, do we have it? Is the, is the, the weighing of fidelity versus performance, you know? And that's something that's good that you picked up on that, like, very consistent with both of them. You kind of mentioned that um, you've sort of developed a shorthand with David uh, and you've been working with him for a very long time, so I, under- I guess you must com- like understand each other pretty well. But, I mean, he seems like a pretty cryptic guy. Does he communicate very clearly what he wants? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like... Uh is, you know, he recognizes it as a tool to get to get get to what he's after. So just in his specific word choice, sometimes like instead of pontificating for like paragraphs on something, you know, he might, you know, pick three terms and just throw them out in the air and let let me sort of get my gears going of what that what that means. But, you know, I feel like the difference between him and someone else would be like, uh, somebody might say, oh, I woke up today and, you know, yesterday I heard this song on the radio that got me thinking about this and thinking about this and, oh, man, the, the, the sound on this and that. And, and what were they using back then? And how can, you know, how could we do something? Like with him, it would be like, he would maybe wander into the studio and say, like, you say, Dean, I want to do something with giant B2 bomber guitars, you know? And like, that's it. Like, it'll just be this pregnant pause, letting that sink in and I'm thinking about it. Like, you know, it's, it's an abstract directive, but at the same time, it's very clear as to what it should evoke and what it should sound like. Everyone, I think everyone, it would kind of crystallize in their mind, like, that would sound really cool. How do I get there, you know? And sometimes in the getting there, you might get somewhere left or somewhere right, but in the end, it might not be like, oh, well, we were trying to do giant B2 bomber sounding guitars, and people will be like, oh, I don't know if you achieved that. But at the same time, it starts you off on a path that you would do arrive somewhere. And I think that's the thing with David is he's not interested in getting 
precisely exactly what maybe the initial directive was, but if it leads him on a path that perhaps provides something better or unexpected to what he hadn't considered, that's just as valid as achieving the goal. You know what I mean? So that's the thing where that's a powerful thing to keep in mind and remember. You know, a lot of filmmakers, I feel like, close off to a lot of possibilities because they're after specifically what they've got on the page, you know? I feel like, this is my interpretation, but I feel like if he ever got to a point where everything's going, you know, status quo to what was on the page, he would think of something else to inject into the the thing to kind of rough it up a bit so it's a little bit more than the page. Mm. Because, like, again, he would always, he would say something like, you know, if the script was good, just hand somebody the script, let them read that, you know, as a piece of narrative fiction, you know? It's like, what's the point of making the film, you know? After working with a, other other types of people, no one is his, as open as he is to to the unexpected. He's just in an open, always sort of um, state with his, his net and his satchel open that like if he sees or hears something unexpected, that's the thing he'll tune into as opposed to um, someone else seeing the unexpected, maybe giving them a, a, a weird feeling and saying, yeah, we need to clean that out because that's not part of my original vision. Following on from that, on a film like Inland Empire, which like I'm sure many people didn't fully understand, didn't really... Uh, like? Un- <laughs> I, no, I, no, I liked it, uh, but I didn't understand how a lot of the different uh, plot points related to each other, what the dramatic intention was. Mm-hmm. I felt uh, kind of unsettled and shaken, and I imagine that was an intention maybe, but um, I feel like if I were asked to do sound on that, um, I'd kind of be like, where do I even start? I don't know what's needed in this scene. Was that difficult for you to find, or did, did he tell you what he wanted for the movie or the specific sound? Yeah, well, to get one thing straight, and I think this is a big misconception, like just because I am a mixer and a, a sound editor and a supervisor on that movie, it doesn't mean he's turning to me and saying, what do you think? You know, it's more of this, um, I mean, first of all, he, he knows pretty much precisely what he wants, or he, he has a directive ready to go, but his, his thesis statement with his, his whole practice is um, action and reaction. So I feel like the, the dialogue that we had was unspoken, so it was like, what about this? He would throw out some words. I might play something, and he'll say, yeah, you know, drop it an octave and put seven-second reverb on it or something like that. So it was this constant, you know, shaping and molding of um, his ideas. I mean, he's the master. He holds the key of what the entire work means, and he sees and perceives and hears sound as how can this the picture, jump the idea, jump the mood, the feeling, the concept of the of the piece. So a lot of times with him, it's like, I'm just along for the ride, you know what I mean? And I'm in there trying to supplement and enhance at any possible time that I can, or a lot of times, like, just getting to know everything that he responds to and likes, and going off and making things. It's like trying to 
trying to please and also trying to expand the palette of like, okay, I know he loves train horns and for the last few things like he's asking for the split train horns but maybe I can get like a palette of like 10 new ones that you know can kind of get him to fall in love with those as well you know. I was going to ask you about this train horn sound that I heard in both Eraserhead and Inland Empire mm. and the cool thing about it was that I wasn't sure whether it was diegetic or part of like the sound design do you have a very clear distinction when working with him, what's diegetic and what's not? There's no like terminology or anything like that that we're, that he's talking to me like, you know, I mean, maybe specific scenes he was like, no, this is all happening in the room. You know, can you put room filter on that? Or, you know, he might instruct me, you know, telephone futz on this, on this side of the conversation kind of thing. But for the most part, it's just, you know, he likes to keep things abstract you know um i just feel like a lot of my job when i worked for him was anticipating what his he's thinking and, and trying to align my taste with his taste so i can service and provide at, at a moment's notice what he was after you know i really prided myself in being fast and you know sometimes picking up on a a clue of what he might want and preparing something so that it was there because I think the thing the reason he's flourished and kind of taken like a duck to water to digital technology is just because it's the immediacy he wants as an artist it's frustrating to have an idea and wait six months to see it realized you know so um, when he fell in love with like the internet in the early 2000s and was just making video pieces to put online it was like I mean, he loved that because it was allowed him to do everything, and it's the immediacy of it. And when he's working on that stuff himself, he doesn't have to talk to anybody about it, you know? Like, he doesn't have to translate the idea from a, a cognitive synapse fire into words and then watch it come back to him wrong. Maybe somebody didn't fully grasp something. So, you know, I think in a perfect world, He'd do everything himself, you know? He would do the entire thing himself. But my job, my role was to really just try to get inside his head, understand him, so he could, you know, the shorthand was there, the effortlessness of communication was there. I mean, even with both music and sound, my job was like, I wanted, you know, I wanted to get him fired up. You know, he's like an incredibly, like, passionate filmmaker. And I've always said, like, his movies, it's not like just kind of scary and emotional. It's just like fucking terrifying and heartbreaking, you know? But that's how he is in life. It's like he'll hear a piece of music and he'll, you know, if, if, if he's responding to it, it's just like, you know, his face gets so contorted and he's like, fucking hell, man. You just get addicted to that, like wanting to see that happen more and more. And when you hear things, you're like, you know, maybe, maybe David would respond to this, I want to play this for him or, and the same thing, too. He would come in, he said, I, you know, I heard something fucking incredible last night. You know, listen to this. And he'd play it for me. And it's just always going through my filter of, like, he likes this, 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 and this. So when he asks for a guitar, maybe, or he asks for a certain sound that's, that's in a certain world, you know, I'm cross-referencing with all those other things he played me and thinking, how can I provide that for him in the same manner that will elicit the same, you know, sort of emotional response he's a tuning fork, you know? And that's why he, he's worked with tons of different, you know, sound practitioners, tons of different 
you know, um, actors, and yet it all comes out as a singular voice, his voice, because, you know, his tuning fork is so incredibly strong, and his passion is so incredibly tactile that, like, just everything that passes through that filter comes out one way, his way, you know? The gallery was about to open, so our time was up. However, Dean, being a super-duper nice dude, agreed to continue chatting. So, with a bit more time left, we went upstairs to an office in the admin area of the gallery. A lot quieter, but not as pretty. Something you mentioned earlier, which you've talked about a lot in interviews previous, is electricity. And I keep seeing that word and that sound popping up in David's work. Oh, yeah. Do you know why he's so into that? Well, he's into a lot of things that are super inspiring like that, where they're just these concepts or these these moments or forces that have a lot of, you know, charge, no pun intended. But um, with electricity, I think, I think he's stated in an interview, it's just like, it's this thing that's in all of our homes and we don't think about it that often, you know, but it's this like incredible, like man-made kind of force that's sinister, you know? And, you know, in that that new series and even Fire Walk With Me, it's like one of the motifs is just like the power lines and it's like it's it connects everything, you know what I mean? Like it's everywhere, like we're we're humans the Western culture kind of can't live without it, you know? So it's like this in, incredible conduit that connects everything, you know? But yeah, he's definitely, um, that's definitely a thing for him. You know, it's like, what else does he love? Yeah, like foghorns, train horns, um, and guitar, electric guitar, you mm-hmm. know? Like, mm-hmm. loved the sound of, like, Jimi Hendrix at Monterey Pop Festival, you know, with like the whammy bar on a distorted guitar, you know, sounding like, you know, eight-cylinder engine revving up, you know. Like he just got, I feel like he got fired up about that particular performance that Jimi Hendrix gave, and I feel like his own guitar playing when he's played on things is like a direct descendant of that, you know, like that one moment that touched him so much that that's all he wants to emulate or or play like, you know. Is the process of making music with him similar to the process of sound for film? Um, I don't think it's similar. I feel like without the image, there's a little more, there's less rules and parameters. So it's a little more exploratory. And I feel like, um, I mean, a lot of his strategy to begin with is um, less scoring specifically to picture and just making a bunch of stuff and creating and curating a library and then seeing where that stuff gets utilized later, you know? So, I mean, I've talked about this a lot, but one of the most impacting sort of things about that job working with him was he never said, okay, we're going to work on an album now. You know, okay, um, we need to write a pop song today and it's going to have lyrics and, you know, and it was always started by the same phrase, I want him saying, I want to try an experiment. And when you, when you do that 
and you say, I want to try an experiment, it instantly is an infinite possibility of what something can be. There's no, should be no judgment about something under that context because it's a, it's an experiment. You know, it doesn't, um, sometimes experiments fail. Sometimes an experiment, you're, you're only out to see what the experiment is providing you and you sort of analyze that data. But it's like the moment you say, we're going to make some music that will probably be eventually should be able to use a score somewhere in a scene and the scene's going to be really action packed. You know, well, as soon as you start making any sort of sound or noise in that, my mind at least is going to instantly start judging like the tempo of this seems a little slow. If it's a fast scene, maybe we should have fast music or maybe it's a counterpoint. Maybe it should be really slow. You know, there's like all these set of things where anything that you do is going to be judged under parameters because you have a goal in mind and you're thinking about something when an experiment is limitless. And what happens is what my mind was conditioned like being in that role for him was constant surprise because you, you end up going down a path doing these things and then years later you might completely forget what something sounded like, completely forget that you actually did something and then, lucky enough, you're thrust into the role of the viewer of the work, and you're re-listening to things that you worked on that you don't remember, and you're appreciating them purely as sound. And you're saying, you know, that's really interesting. You know, that could be used here. Or even memories like, I remember when we were doing this, it didn't sound like much. I thought, what would this possibly be used for? And yet, here it is, perfect for this particular usage and instance you know that's the thing i took away from him for sure as a big the biggest lesson i feel is um is uh and i feel like you know most of how he lives his life is just constantly in the making state you know like he's always generating always making and you can be making things you could have you could have these things that seem like total rubbish and then all of a sudden a context is generated and it's just like, oh, this would be perfect for this or these groupings of experiments are, it's an album. There's like an album here, there's there's a theme and there's, you know, putting this in the context of a record, like it could go over really well, you know. I mean, case in point, he just released a record with Angelo Badalamenti um, called Thought Gang. And this was a... a jazz experiments that they did in the early 90s and what was happening is they were like working on some of the lesser known like uh, Lynch projects like Hotel Room and um, some of the commercials that he's done. They would get studio time, they would they would have some time left over and they'd have these A-class musicians sitting around so David would say let's uh, let's try a couple experiments and they'd sort of back catalog those and sort of earmark those as like thought gang ideas. David would write some lyrics to some of the, he would give all the musicians like a, um, a scene or a set of directives, you know, like I want you to play World War Three and four parts or whatever. And, you know, again, back to that thing that we were talking about earlier, like these simple descriptors that pops out there and lets pe- gives people the freedom to also take that and run with it. You get like an instrumental backing track, David would scrawl some lyrics and then Angelo would like read or sing the lyrics. And this 
this thing, this project kind of sat there. They would do a little here, a little there. Back the, I think it was like 90, 92 to 94 was maybe the, the parameters of that project, but then it was never released or anything. And David would always kind of like, kind of self-effacingly be like, well, I don't think anybody's going to be interested in this music. It's just far out there. But at, at the, you know, like here we are in 2018, I feel like we're primed more than ever. The stuff is like a free jazz noise, you know, experiment. And I feel like that is kind of at the forefront of um, independent music these days. Like those those types of things are are a thing now. They've really grown and expanded in the last few years. And um, and that record just came out, it's just sitting dormant for you know twenty years or whatever. So that's. Interesting, and I wanted to ask about your recent album, um, Anthologies Volume 1. Was he involved in the curating of that at all, or was that mostly your part? Well, that was just um, throughout Twin Peaks, and because Twin Peaks was moving kind of at a faster pace than, than the other things that I'd worked with David on, I feel like in the past there'd be these things where he you know he'd say I want to experiment with this or let's do a session I need to get some like kind of scary choral material or whatever and um when Twin Peaks was coming along he was saying hey do we have any scary choral material or you know I need that and I was just in a zone where I was trying to quickly make something to give it because you know he had a need he was cutting some of these scenes himself and wanted to try things in there and I was just taking directives like do we have any and I was just like let me look knowing full well we didn't have any but I was just trying to make something and give him options in his you know edit window so that stuff ended up being just the 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 things that were utilized that I had kind of created and I was just collecting them together much in the same way that Johnny Jewell, who was another contributor to the project, he was sending over, you know, folders of, of music to see if anything would stick. And David ended up using a couple Johnny's cues here and there. And of course, Johnny kind of collected that stuff together and had an album release of that. So mine was just collecting together these little moments that I, you know, I had built for David. But a lot of that stuff is like, again, um, I get a, be, a bit sheepish about it because it's like, not necessarily like uh, my, my voice, like all these, these concepts are, are David's, you know, they're the things he was after, the electricity, you know, or, or things that he needed and that he was after. And it's just happened to make those things, you know, and, and what I experienced with him, I don't expect to experience with any other filmmaker, you know. And I mean, some filmmakers are so tone deaf to sound that the film is handed over to a, a sound supervisor and that is in their domain. And, you know, there's no qualms or discussions about it. It's just kind of like thought about here, you know, make it sound like a movie, mm. you know. Mm. Um, yet other filmmakers who are extremely attentive and involved and have an ear and you know realize the 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 power of just what 3db of a background can do to change the vibe of a scene 
then you're you're getting into a deep collaboration with somebody. But yeah, these 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 roles aren't they mean different things for different projects, you know? Um, sometimes the music supervisor role, sometimes I'm sure you get like a director like Tarantino who is coming to the table with like, you know, a list of songs that he wants to use for each scene. And I'm sure the supervisor's role at that point is just become simply tracking down rights owners and, and licensing all that stuff. And there there's no point of creative suggestion it's just they're fulfilling a a role you know with people like the Werner Herzogs and the David Lynch's of the world it's like we're 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 leaving a space where that benefactor thing happens less and less you know I feel like a lot of David's best work was funded by the French and they were just like you know Canal Plus was like here you know do your thing Mm -hmm. and gave him complete freedom and control because they respected him, the new Twin Peaks. I mean, I think if nothing else, people are just kind of wowed by the fact that that exists, you know, like a whole 18-hour movie in this day and age. And, I mean, the whole thing was, you know, David was just given carte, I don't want to say carte blanche, but, like, there was no interference. It was just, like, Showtime was essentially, like, let us know when it's done, <laughs> you know? And he yeah. made, made the whole thing in his house, essentially. I mean, the, the, the dubbing stage that I worked at was a part of his house, mm-hmm. and, you know, picture editorial came in and wedged in closets, and it was all there, the, I mean, the entire post, you know? So that is something that, like, as we move forward in the future, like, you know, kind of needs to be protected, you know, and and it's happening less and less, and there's there's notes and studio execs and and everything, and it's it's art the art by committee thing, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's just the I feel like David's projects are just reminders that it can be, uh, you can just trust an artist and let it be a singular vision because even when you want it, if you're just pulling people for their name appeal. Mm-hmm executive produced by the people who brought you, you know, yeah. the sixth sense or something yeah. like that. It's just like it becomes a commodity thing and, and you know, it's just a crazy it's it's different. And I guess I guess that in that way we've come full circle of like talking about downstairs. It's like that old world way of doing things of like benefactors commissioning works. Um and being hands off about it, and you, you get what you get. You know, you're commissioning a work. You're giving an artist a, an opportunity to have the freedom to make a statement unaffected. And if you really want the statement, if you're interested in the statement, because I've seen a lot of people too, like um, even in the commercial world, you know, because David's done a fair amount of ads, they want the name, and then as it starts to go down the path, they start hemming and hawing about this and that and it's kind of like that always like broke my heart because I mean David doesn't didn't doesn't really know how to process that he's just used to doing his thing you know I mean that's why people like him so much is because he his voice is uh unfiltered Mm. and um it seems like a lost cause if you're if you're just trying to get at an artist just for a name, you know, fiscal 
mm. uh, return on something, mm. you know. Mm. Kind of coming off that, is there any other director that you'd really like to work with in the future other than David? That's a tough one. I kind of think I was spoiled. I don't know if there's anybody I can work for. I'd love to just taste the other flavors of work experience and and see what that's like. I mean, I'm working for a young 30-year-old first-time director right now. It's a totally different different thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I you know, it's still in the uncomfortable new new role situation where it's just like, I really miss David because I know exactly what he would react to this situation. I know exactly what he would want. I would know how to please him, you know. But it's good It's good to um, interface with other filmmakers and, and personalities and just get to know. Um, definitely not for me. <laughs> yeah. The random phone ringing in the office brought a comical end to our time together, but I learned a lot from him, and I hope you did too. If you want to experience his composition for The Masters of Modern Sound, the event will be happening at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney from the 10th to the 12th of January 2018, with The Masters of Modern Art from the Hermitage Exhibition open from now until the 3rd of March. You can find links to both those events on the Sound Perspective website at soundperspectivepodcast.com. Big thanks to Julian Patu for stills photography, Jordan Benjamin for videography, Jamaica Blackman for help with editing, and Jean-David Legulon for the music. Lily Ford helped with graphic design in the website, and Lewis Anatko drew the key art. Thanks to the Art Gallery of New South Wales for helping to make this happen. And the biggest thanks go to you for listening. Have a great day, and I hope to see you next time.